sermon series in the Gospel of Luke, and this is actually the 14th uh, sermon in this series, and you're staying with it. Well done, church. Um, And I just thought this morning it might be really helpful just to stop for a second and see where does today's chapter, chapter 20 of Luke, where does that kind of fall in the timeline of Jesus and his ministry and life and all the things that he did. So we're going to throw up a slide that kind of shows you this. Katrina, my wonderful admin assist, did this. Good job, Katrina. So you can kind of see it moves right from the first couple chapters of Luke that so much happened before Jesus was even born. The prophecies about who he was and who he was come to be. The, uh, the birth of John the Baptist, the man who would kind of prepare the way for Jesus. And then Jesus' miraculous conception with Mary, amazing stuff. And then there's his birth. And then we get a one brief glimpse of him at 12 years of age. And we had a sermon about that. And then kind of his public launch of ministry as an adult. And uh, beginning with his baptism that was just such an amazing event. He came down, John the Baptist baptized him in the Jordan River. And God the Father spoke from heaven. And the Holy Spirit came down in the form of a dove. An amazing uh, public launch to his ministry. The bulk of Luke is concerned with all of Jesus' teachings, miracles, uh, all the things that he did. And then uh, it has a lot to say about the final couple weeks of Jesus' life. And uh, just before our chapter today has been the triumphal entry, Jesus' final trip to Jerusalem, where he comes in and the crowds embrace him. They are waving palms. There's a lot of fanfare. So excited that Jesus is there. And so our chapter today, Luke 20, is a few days after the triumphal entry. So just to kind of give you a little sense of where we are in the Gospel of Luke. Now, at the end of the previous chapter, we see Jesus cleansing the temple. And that appears to be the final straw for the religious leaders. Uh, They go from kind of skeptical about Jesus and not believing his message and being offended at many of the things he is saying They go from that to finally saying, this guy has overturned the temple. That's the last straw. We are going to plot how to kill him and get rid of him. And so we see in Luke 19, 47 and 48, it says, Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Amazing stuff. Now it makes sense why when we open chapter 20, these religious leaders are questioning and attacking Jesus' authority. Jesus is teaching a group of people in the temple grounds. And we're not told exactly where in the temple they are, uh, but he's in the temple grounds. And the group of assembled religious leaders and kind of the bigwigs from the nation of Israel are there as well. And they have one overriding concern. Don't let a Messiah figure or a Savior get the nation all excited, start a riot, and upset the Romans because they will come in and kill us all and crush the place. Now those fears weren't entirely unfounded because a mere 40 years later, that happened. Here's one artist's depiction of the, the crushing of Jerusalem by the Roman general Tiberius in AD 70. It was awful, awful. The the streets ran red with blood. Uh, The temple and much of the city was destroyed. Now, 
the problem was that the religious leaders, as well as the, the elders and the leaders of the nation, completely failed to understand who Jesus was. Because Jesus didn't come to be the political savior for one tiny nation. Jesus had a much bigger mission to earn spiritual salvation for every human being, past, present, and future, whoever lived and ever will live. And what the religious leaders were so worried about was far too small of an objective for Jesus to accomplish. But these guys don't get this because they are so out of tune with what God is doing in history. So one way the leaders try to seek to discredit Jesus and undermine him is to attack his authority. So that's where we pick it up today. Luke 20, verses 1 through 8. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us, by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Yeah. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Now the title of my sermon today is The End of Religion. And I'm not really going to explain that till the end of the sermon, but I think you'll see how it all makes sense. So these guys are saying, what right does he have to teach and say the kind of things and do the kind of things that Jesus is doing? Now, Jesus doesn't give them a direct answer back. Instead, he asks a really brilliant question back. And this forms the title of our first point, a well-placed question. So what's his question? Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? And at this point, it almost gets a little comical. They kind of say, Jesus, we will get back to you in just a second, but we need a little time here. And so they kind of huddle up like a quarterback in his football team. And they're essentially having this internal conversation and they're saying, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they're persuaded that John was a prophet. The key to understanding this is ask the simple question, what was John's major message? And John was really simple. Repent, turn around from what you've been doing, be baptized and get ready for the Messiah. And that's fulfilled that day Jesus marches down to John at the Jordan River. John baptizes him and officially kicks off Jesus' ministry. So if the religious leaders had answered Jesus' question and said, well, John's authority comes from God, then Jesus would say, I'm the one. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one John was talking about. Why don't you believe me? In fact, Jesus would say, why don't you ask some of your religious leader buddies who were there that day and heard God the Father speak from heaven, saw the Holy Spirit come down in the form of a dove. So that doesn't seem to be the conclusion they want. 
So then they kind of go through, they think through the opposite response. Well, what if we say John's authority wasn't from God, it was just kind of him being a human being and proclaiming this? That's not really going to work either, because the people are convinced that John was a mighty prophet of God. They are not going to be happy for us, and it's not going to go well. So hilariously, they kind of choose option C. And they essentially say, uh, Jesus, we don't really know. We're kind of clueless. Jesus said, well then, neither will I tell you by what authority I do, do these things. And I can almost imagine this scene as they, as they walk away and they're kind of thinking, man, that didn't work. And then they turn on each other and they're like, well, whose idea was this? And, he, and they're like, well, shut up. Did you have a better idea? Okay, maybe I read a little bit into it, but I think I'm pretty close. Now, it's a fascinating little question, but the, scene we always need, the question we always need to ask is, all right, that's an interesting little account. What difference does it make to me right here, right now, 2,000 years later? But the interesting and fascinating thing is, it does totally apply to us because of this idea. The authority of Jesus has been attacked unsuccessfully for the past 2,000 years. These guys were the first to try it, but over and over and over again in history, the authority of Jesus has been attacked. And, and nobody seems to do any better than these guys did. Discrediting Jesus just doesn't seem to work. Listen to this quote by historian Michael Grant. I love this. So powerful. He says, The most potent figure, not only in the history of religion, but in world history as a whole, is Jesus Christ, the maker of one of the few revolutions which have lasted. Millions of men and women for century after century have found his life and teaching overwhelmingly significant and moving. So if you can't discredit Jesus, if nobody's done that for the past 2,000 years, then that actually matters to you and I in our personal life. Think about it. When you are faced with the loss of employment, you're struggling to find a new job, you yourself may be tempted to question Jesus' authority. You may doubt his promises. Like Matthew 6, 25 and 26. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are, they, are you not much more valuable than they? An amazing promise. Jesus says, I will always be there to provide for you. You don't have to despair. And when we stop and we consider it, we realize, you know what? No attack on the authority of Jesus ever sticks, even or ever lasts, not even our own doubts. Maybe it's relational. We're faced with a breakup with a boyfriend, a girlfriend, or divorce from a husband or wife, or it seems like the whole world is falling apart. Maybe even the extreme of a, of a spouse dying, and we, we face the overwhelming loss and grief. And in that moment, we may be tempted to doubt, to question Jesus' authority, and again, to doubt his promise. And then we read words like Matthew 28, 20. Jesus said, In teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always 
to the very end of the age. No attack on the authority of Jesus ever sticks, ever lasts, not even our own doubts. Well, Jesus looks out at this crowd of people that he is teaching, and he, the people have seen this exchange between him and the religious leaders, and he decides to tell them a parable because he wants to clarify this is how God the Father views this entire situation. So we're going to pick it up in verse 9. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. He sent another servant, but that one they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He still sent a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. It's quite a scene. Now this parable is very clearly an allegory. Each character or group of characters in the story equals real persons. This parable is recorded in three of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Luke, he simply says a man planted a vineyard. In Matthew, it says there was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press, and built a watchtower. So we're meant to understand that the landowner equals God the Father. That's kind of the the allegory here. Now, it talks about a vineyard. Well, what does that represent? Well, the the image there is that it, the vineyard represents the entire nation, all of the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. And they were pretty familiar with that because one of their greatest prophets in Israel's history, the prophet Isaiah, specifically makes that connection. Isaiah 5-7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, a cry. So the landowner equals God the Father. The vineyard equals the nation of Israel, all the Jewish people. Now God gave the Jewish people very clear instructions of what they were supposed to do as a nation. What was their mission statement? What were they called to? God lays it out in Exodus 19, 5 and 6. And he says this, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests 
and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So two things are called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Well, what does it mean to be a kingdom of priests? Well, a priest's job is to stand between the people and God. To serve the people in place of God. To pray to God for them. To make sacrifices on behalf of others. And that is what the nation of Israel was designed to do. They were supposed to stand between God and all the other nations. They were supposed to serve them, pray for them, sacrifice for them. It's debatable how well they did with that. At times they they did okay, and most of the time they failed at that. So they're called to be a kingdom of priests, and then they're called to be a holy nation. What does that mean? Well, it simply means that they were supposed to be set apart as examples. They were supposed to be different. When every other kingdom in the ancient world was thinking, all right, we can beat up these other nations, we can expand our territory, we can increase our borders, we can, we can accumulate more wealth, Israel was supposed to be different. God said to them, be content within the borders that I've given you. Don't be hungry for more wealth or land. Don't try to kill and conquer. Be content. So they were supposed to be different. And while other nations followed gods of their land like Moloch and Baal, those kind of religions had awful practices like child sacrifice. Again, the Israelites were supposed to be different. And in fact, they honored children. They didn't harm them. In a word, the nation was supposed to be fruitful. Just like a vineyard is supposed to have a big harvest of grapes, so God the land the landowner sends his servants to collect his share of the nation's harvest. Now, who are these servants that he sends? Well, those are the prophets. And prophet after prophet in the whole first half of the Bible is trying to collect a harvest of good and right and godly behavior from the nation. Micah 6.8 is one of hundreds of examples of what the prophets proclaimed over and over. The people said, what does God want from us? And Micah said, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. But unfortunately, the leaders of Israel, the tenant farmers, did not receive the prophets well. And you can go through and list all of the prophets, the ones that jumped into my mind right away. Jeremiah, they persecuted poor Jeremiah. At one point, they jammed him down in a muddy cistern and almost let him drown. The kings of Israel despised the prophet Elijah and his successor Elisha tried to have them killed. So these tenant farmers were terrible to the prophets. And that's what the history of Israel showed us. Every time a prophet of God showed up, they weren't received well. So after three tries, the landowner decides to send his son. And this is the really shocking part of the parable the tenant farmers actually seize the son and kill him. And the crowd listening to Jesus that day would have been open mouth. They said, what? Who would do such a thing? And that's when Jesus delivers his punchline, his knockout statement. He says, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. This parable had a pretty bold and blunt message for those religious leaders of the nation. And verse 19 at the end tells us they understood it perfectly. They were completely offended. They understood 
The entire point of the parable was against them. And the crazy irony is that the landowner's son, Jesus, is standing right in front of them, but they still refuse to acknowledge him as the son. And it doesn't seem to matter how many amazing miracles Jesus does, how many times he exhibits power over the natural world, from turning water into wine to stilling storms on the Sea of Galilee, these turkeys continue to reject him and refuse to believe that Jesus is the real deal, the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah. And he's standing right in front of them. It's amazing. Amazing how blinded as human beings we can become. As I was thinking about this week, and I was kind of pondering that part of the sermon, and as I was reading those verses, oddly enough, a video about Arnold Schwarzenegger came to mind. So this was done for charity a couple of years ago when the latest Terminator movie, Genesis, came out. And if you don't know anything about Terminator movies, basically he's a robot from the future, and he's kind of big and scary. In this movie, he's a nice, big, scary robot. Um, And so as they were getting ready for the release of the movie, they dressed Arnold up in full makeup and sent him out on the streets. And it's amazing. People don't recognize him. They don't see that he's the real thing. All right, we're going to take a look at the video. Let me do one more job. What's the matter? Come with me if you want to live. I'm looking for sunglasses. Would this protect from shotgun blasts? Probably not. No. I think they're sizzling. Hey guys. <laughs> Who are you? I'm the Terminator. Who are you? I'm the Terminator. I'm the T-800. I'm a cybernetic organism. Human tissue of a metal endoskeleton. Please don't bump my selfie stick. Get out. Just joking. Who is this? Arnold Schwarzenegger. This is my line. I'll be back. I'll be back. I'll be back. I'll be back. Back. I'll be back. I'll be back. (laughs) Because I am. Can he help you? No touching.
don't seem to understand who he is. And that is honestly the leaders of Israel. They watch Jesus teach, preach, cast out demons, heal, control nature, and they still refuse to acknowledge him. And the one part of the parable that sounds really odd to us is this plot to kill the son of the landowner. How will committing murder gain them ownership of the vineyard? Well, it doesn't make sense apart from one key fact. The tenant farmers think that the landowner is dead. And they think if no one's around, if they have been living there and they've been occupying, then possessions nine-tenths of the law, they will just kind of inherit the vineyard. Turns out the landowner is not dead. And verse 19, as we said, they fully understood this was about them. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. All right, so in our final point, we want to transition by simply asking what is the meaning for this parable for us? Living here in Ladysmith 2018 on the west coast of this great nation of Canada, how is this relevant to us? Well, the thought of the promise of God for Israel being shifted to others was enough to cause the crowd of faithful Jews listening to cry out, God forbid. But that is what ultimately happened. Instead of the nation of Israel being used as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation of the rest of the world, a task which they never completely succeeded at, God says, I'm transferring that job to the church, established through the death and resurrection of my son. Jesus is the new Israel. By extension, all of us as followers make up his body. We too are part of the new Israel. And just to make sure we totally get this, the Apostle Peter, the leader of Jesus' disciples, in his letter in the New Testament, the, uh, the book of 1 Peter, he restates Exodus 19, 5 and 6, but he applies it to the church. And he says, now it's our turn to be kingdom of priests, to serve everyone in the world, and to be a holy nation. And for the last 2,000 years, the church is made up of every single ethnicity on the face of planet Earth, from ethnic Jewish people who have embraced Jesus as the Messiah, the one they follow, to Chinese people, to Scottish, to Norwegian, to Nigerian, to Russian, to Brazilian people. Every ethnicity under God. That is the church worldwide for the past 2,000 years. And as a church, we have been learning what does it mean to be kingdom of priests and a holy nation to the world. Sometimes we failed, but a lot of times we've succeeded. So Jesus looks at this crowd and says, what is the meaning of that which is written, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Daryl Bach, the scholar I've been quoting throughout this Luke series, says the main point comes down to this. Do you have a relationship with the exalted stone, Jesus? Or are you falling over the stone and being crushed by it? They may slay the son, but the master will have his day in court. 
God does not take the rejection of His Son lightly. That's the central point. What do we do with Jesus? Many of you are familiar with the Narnia stories. Seven books written by C.S. Lewis, most brilliant Christian thinker of the 20th century. The most famous of these books is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Oddly enough, this year, both our local high school, Ladysmith Secondary and Duncan Christian, are putting on the theatrical version of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. These books have continued to be really popular. They've made big movies out of them. The final book in the series is entitled The Last Battle. And and in this final book, it basically plays out a little bit of the book of Revelation, the wrapping up of history. In these books, it's the end of the world of Narnia. And the climactic moment is when every single creature and person in Narnia must walk up to Aslan the lion. And in these stories, Aslan is the Christ figure. He is Jesus in these stories. And every single person has to look Jesus in the face. I'm going to read an excerpt to close this sermon for us. It says, The creatures came rushing on, their eyes brighter and brighter, as they drew nearer and nearer to the standing stars. But as they came right up to Aslan, one or other of two things happened to them. They all looked straight in his face. I don't think they had a choice about that. And when some looked, the expression of their faces changed terribly. It was fear and hatred. They were, and all the creatures who looked at Aslan in that way swerved to the right, his left, and disappeared into a huge black shadow, which, as you have heard, streamed away to the left of the doorway. The children never saw them again, and I don't know what became of them. But the others looked in the face of Aslan and loved him, though some of them were frightened at the same time, and all these came into the door in on Aslan's right. It's a literary depiction of the great choice that every single human being will face. Do we look in Jesus' face and do we love him and follow him or do we despise him? And ultimately, at the end of our life, when we stand before Christ, it is not based on whether we have been to church enough times or whether we've tithed or not or whether we've gone on a missions trip or not. Those are all wonderful, amazing things. But the only one dividing factor, whether we go on his left or his right, is the decision we make about Jesus. Do we follow him or not? Maybe you're here today and you've never made that decision or you've been putting it off. I want to urge you today, don't delay any longer. I promise at the beginning to tell you why I entitled the sermon The End of Religion. You see, religion in our popular understanding is people striving to reach God, to earn God's favor by doing all the right things and keeping all the rules. The Christian faith is not about religion. When we use the word in that sense, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 obliterates that thinking. It says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. It's the end of of religion. It's the end of us trying so hard for God to love us and accept us. 
if you're here today and you've already chosen him many years ago to follow Jesus, then I think there's a slightly different application for us today. As I said a couple months ago in a sermon, we aren't saved by good works, but we are certainly saved for good works. And that's what's made clear in the very next verse, Ephesians 2.10. It says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You see, I think the choice to follow Jesus, sure, it's that initial placing of faith. That's the beginning of the journey. But in a lot of ways, when we follow Jesus, it's a continual choice. Each and every day, we face the same choice. Who is Lord of my life? Who am I following? Is it myself or is it Jesus? Maybe, like me, you often look at your life. You do a little inventory and you go, you know what, I am really good at following Jesus in 95% of my life. But there's this little 5% over here. Maybe my, my hang-up is gossip. Maybe I just, if I hear something, I have to tell others about it. But I think our passage today says, you know what? It's all or nothing. Jesus deserves to be Lord of all of our lives. Maybe we're the kind of person who's truthful. We work hard. We show compassion to others. But the one part of our Christian walk we just can't seem to get straight, we are terrible (coughs) at communicating with Jesus. Either in Bible reading or prayer. Again, I would say He is Lord of all of our life. Maybe for some of us, our hang-up is money. We can give everything to Jesus except our wallet. Lord, we're just not willing to go there. Whatever it is, Jesus is the 100% Lord of our life, not the 95% Lord. (coughs) He deserves to be Lord of everything. And the ultimate choice is very simple. Yes or no to following Jesus. Kalen, will you come and pray for us? I'm a dad. Is there anybody here that's a father? Put your hand up for a sec. Right on. Um, when I, sometimes it's hard for me to conceptualize my relationship with God in the big picture. So I think about my relationship with my son Jacob. And my son Jacob is in grade one. And uh, he brings pictures home quite a lot. And I never once look at that picture and go, you know what? It's good. But you change the colors a little bit. You know, you're kind of outside the lines. And, um, you know, kind of proud of you, but not, you know, you 